the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt. Joined now by Dr. Francis Collins of the National Institute for Health. Hello, Dr. Collins. How are you again? I am just fine. How are you this morning? I'm great. I'm dog-sitting, so you've got an extra person in the studio with me this morning. Uh, Well, I'll try not to let my cat get on the screen because we might have a problem. We would. We (laughs) would. Uh, Dr. Collins, I want to start with trials and then go to trust, the 2T interview. First of all, I got a bunch of questions from people who participated in trials when vaccine candidates were up. What is the advice NIH has for them on getting boosters or other vaccines or if they did a trial that wasn't one that ended up working? Well, that's something that is uh, up to the companies that they took part in the trials. I think virtually all of them, once the trial is completed, have been offered the chance to get immunized um, with either the vaccine that was approved because they were part of that trial and maybe they got the placebo or with a different vaccine. So yeah, definitely nobody should be compromised by having volunteered to take part in these trials. We are all of us in their death, 100,000 people for the Moderna, the Pfizer, the J&J trial made it possible for us to know that these things work and they should certainly of all people be well covered now. So there are two categories there. The, the sec- first question I get from people, is, I, it did work for me, my, my spouse got it. But now, when when do we get guidance on whether or not we have to get another booster or a second shot? Is that out there? Does that come from the people that gave it to you? So I think now you're talking about anybody who got vaccinated. Are we going to need boosters in the future or are you covered for the foreseeable? We don't know what the long-term duration is of protection uh, from the vaccines that are currently in more than 150 million people's arms. It's looking pretty good uh, when you look at the data we have, because we haven't had this vaccine out there for that long. It looks like the levels stay up pretty well over six, seven, eight months. But I don't know what they'll look like at a year or two years. Are we gonna need boosters for everybody the way you do for your tetanus? The other issue, Hugh, is those variants that are out there. And so far, you know, we now call them alpha, beta, gamma, and delta instead of those numbers. Uh, So far, the vaccines look like they protect you against all of those slightly scary viruses that are more contagious, but they do seem to be protected. But I worry about what's down the line here. Will we see a variant emerge in the next few months, the vaccines don't quite work for, and then you'll need a booster for that. So well, you got to see, right? That zeroes us in over the target. Some of the people who got the trial vaccine are now past a year. 
They're in fact 15 months after or, or 14 months after they got the shot. What about them and boosters? Should they get one just to be safe? No, not yet. Not yet. It's looking pretty good. And again, the people who got the, tr the trials the earliest, the phase one trial, those were only a few dozen people. The big trials, the so-called phase three, uh, started at the end of July. And most of those people didn't really get injected with their first dose until like August, September. And they didn't have their second dose until a month after that. So the big data that we have to work on is more like seven or eight months. It's not a year, but it's looking good. So forthcoming. Now, let me turn to the National Institute of Virology in China, doctor. Uh, Josh Rogan and I have been working on this for a couple of years, uh, and uh, we're in our second year of looking at WIV. And you were in front of uh, Energy and Commerce. Kathy McMorris Rogers sent you a long letter full of questions. They got back a two-page non-response. Did you oversee that response, Dr. Collins? Because uh, McMorris Rogers staff is not pleased. <laughs> Well, it was quite a letter they sent. Uh, I think it was like 29 questions, 11 pages, 40 footnotes, getting deep into all kinds of territory uh, that was beyond our ability to come up with quick answers to. So we did our best uh, to try to be respectful and put forward a response on the high level issues. But uh, clearly, they want to have further conversation. I think we also volunteered that maybe this would be an opportunity to just talk to them instead of having this long list of questions and many, many, many pages of letters and emails. Why don't we actually discuss it? Well, now, doctor, this is where I'm not a scientist. I didn't stay at a, at a Holiday Inn, but I do know government, and I've been confirmed by the Senate. When I went up there, I had to answer every question when I got confirmed. And when I was a general counsel of agencies and my agency got asked questions, we had to answer every subparagraph why would the NIH not go to the effort of being fully responsive? Because it does give off the appearance of evasion. Well, I sure don't want to create that appearance, uh, Hugh. I think we want to be as transparent as possible. NIH has always uh, been in favor of that and of being responsive, regardless of who the questions are coming from. But this is an incredibly complicated story. Much of the information they're asking for, we don't have the answers to. Some of it is pretty sensitive, not quite classified, but getting close to that. So just didn't seem like this was going to be well served uh, by having a very, very detailed exchange of letters. And again, in our response, we offered uh, to have the chance to simply get into a secure space and have a conversation. Now, doctor, that would be uh, a good response, which is we need to do this in a skiff. But NIH got into trouble by arrogating to itself the decision-making authority. And I'm a big fan of Dr. Fauci, but he said I was trying to influence behavior, so I answered it differently than I otherwise would have. When NIH doesn't respond to congressionally authorized committees, that does raise questions of governance. We're a nation of laws. NIH is a creature of the federal government, and the Congress oversees NIH. So I, if I can go back around, I don't want to be rude, but I, I really think you ought to go down paragraph by paragraph and answer each question, even if it is we have to discuss this in a skiff. And again, I think that's the proposal we're making. But let's try to do this in a fashion that actually improves the opportunity for information exchange instead of making it very rigorous, very bureaucratic, very okay, 40 footnotes, 29 questions. We need your 30-page response to this. 
I, I'm not sure that's going to help us as much as actually trying as best we can uh, to talk to each other about what we know and what we don't know. There's an awful lot we don't know. You know, Hugh, this whole issue about whether something happened at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, nobody knows. <laughs> the really critical thing is there needs to be a thorough investigation. The WHO effort did not meet that standard. We need something that's going to be expert driven with complete openness by the Chinese government to give answers to questions they have not answered. We're really frustrated by that as, as well. And so for me to be able to say, well, okay, I'm going to answer Kathy McMorris Rogers letter and it'll all settle. It won't settle it because we just don't know what happened. Well, yeah, but given a stab at it, uh, the best best possible stab is, I think, so crucial to maintaining NIH credibility, which I think is vital. Let me go to the EcoHealth Alliance. Again, I'm a general counsel of two federal agencies in the past. I know how this stuff works. When you give a grant, the money ends up going to the Wuhan Institute of Virology through the EcoHealth Alliance. You're inevitably supporting all the research at any grantee because overhead is built into every grant. Now, there were two five-year grants. One was terminated, according to NPR. Doesn't that put the federal government in the position of having supported WIV at some level for some function? Because money is fungible. Well, we... When we give a grant, Hugh, it has terms attached to it of what it is that the grantee is supposed to be doing with those funds. And we require uh, annual reports to see whether that, in fact, is what they have been doing. And we trust the grantee to be honest and not deceptive. The grant funds that went to Wuhan, which were a subcontract from EcoHealth, were very specifically aimed to try to categorize viruses that they could isolate from bats in Chinese caves, which we had a good reason to want to know more about, given SARS and MERS that had come out of there. And so uh, we basically have those criteria attached to the grant. And of course, the amount of money that we were providing to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, I'm sure was a tiny fraction of their total funding. And we had no control over what else they were doing with those funds. That's another thing we'd like to know more about and an investigation might potentially tell us. So they have, so according they have to the uh, the head of the EcoHealth Alliance, they had collected 15,000 samples because of the grant, including 400 new coronaviruses. Uh, I have a larger question about whether that's a good idea, period, to go looking for the viruses that can then subsequently escape from labs, possibly. But more importantly, what I do know a lot about from my time at Justice and the White House back in the day is the Chinese Communist Party. And, and I don't know why we would ever trust the Chinese Communist Party, doctor. Even if EcoHealth Alliance is made up of great American scientists, they get 90% of their money from the federal government. So it looks to an outsider like a pass-through and a cutout organization that somehow gets money to the Chinese. And I wouldn't trust the CCP scientists because they, they don't have freedom of science like we do in the United States. You can tell people to pound sand. They can't do that. They'll end up in a gulag in Xinjiang. <laughs> well, Hugh, again, let me just try to argue, although I'm not sure you're convinced of it. Okay, we have had prior to SARS-CoV-2 as a terrible pandemic, two other episodes of very serious coronaviruses that emerged apparently from bats in China. We at the NIH uh, have to think about what the next risk is going to be. Remember, thousands of people died from SARS. 
do we really want to just sort of say, well, we can't investigate that because it involves China and they have some political issues that we're a bit uncomfortable with? I think that would be irresponsible. So if we had the chance to learn more about those viruses, remember, when a pandemic happens, it's not limited to any part of the world. It's, it's global. If we have a chance to learn more about those in a fashion where we have an agreement about what research is to be done and that the results are supposed to be shared, shouldn't we be doing that? Or should we just basically close up and say, we're just not going to work with any country that has politics we're uncomfortable with? I don't think that would that, be responsible. Doctor, that's a kind of a shift. It's not that we have political issues with the government that we're a bit uncomfortable with. What I perhaps have a little advantage over you is I did counterintelligence at the Department of Justice. They are not uh, political issues with which we are uncomfortable. It's a totalitarian state that executes people, suppressed Hong Kong and runs prison camps and a gulag. And in fact, about which we have called, called genocide in the last two years. When the grant was made, that was not the case. I understand the danger. But when we combine my two issues, non-responsiveness to Kathy McMorris Rogers with the nature of a totalitarian Chinese communist regime, we have the reason for congressional oversight. Maybe we wouldn't be here with American money going to the CIV if oversight had gone effectively deep into the NIH policies and not through a cutout organization, EcoHealth Alliance. Does that make sense to you why my expertise would say, gosh, no, we're never giving money to the Chinese communist government, ever? I'm still not convinced uh, that you're making a case that would change our responsibility as the leading organization for pursuing biomedical research in the world, including overseeing risks of a global pandemic. The one thing that keeps us all up at night, we still had to figure out the best way, not a perfect way, to try to gain that information to prepare for what might be a troubling problem downstream. So I, I think we had to do what we had to do. I'm totally open uh, to defending that and to being as transparent as possible in the appropriate place about what exactly we did fund and what we did not fund. But I think when the dust all settles, a reasonable person will say we were doing what NIH should do to try to protect the public against a terrible outbreak. Now, that's an interesting, that's a philosophical problem, doctor, because the question becomes, is there any regime that NIH would not fund directly or through a cutout organization? Does, does the, would you give money to North Korea, which everybody knows is the worst actor in the world? I mean, would you give them, they've got bats in North Korea as well. Would you send them money? Probably not. <laughs> Again, you, I think you're demonizing the Wuhan Institute of Virology as it is pure and simple an instrument of the Chinese Communist Party. There are certainly connections there. But let's be clear. There are scientists working in that institute who are amongst the best in the world in terms of understanding virology. And many of those folks have had long-term relationships with others in other countries, including the United States, with a lot of respect, a lot of shared information. I don't think we should just basically say, well, because they're in that country, they're evil. I think you're going too far with that one. Science oh, I, I don't think the scientists are evil. I think the scientists are coerced. Have you had a chance to read Josh Rogan's Chaos Under Heaven yet, doctor? No, I have not. I would strongly recommend it. And that's just the latest of many books. I've been doing China and Russia and counterespionage for 30 years, so I know this stuff. There is not a free actor in China. There is not a scientist. Didn't someone from the virology lab get disappeared when they put the DNA code up? We don't know that. 
Um, I, I don't think, no, not the person who put the code up, who agreed as the plane door was closing uh, to allow Eddie Holmes in Australia to post it. Uh, that was a wonderful step forward. That made it possible for us to start our vaccine preparation within 24 hours, which is now saving lots and lots of lives. So there's an example of China being willing to make information available very early that otherwise could have readily been delayed. Oh, gosh, doctor. Now, last question, because we're running short on time. The president has ordered a new counterintelligence um, uh, intelligence community investigation. I assume NIH will be cooperating with that. But I want to go back to that oversight issue and that letter from McMorris Rogers and any letter from Senator Cotton or anybody else. NIH is a creature of the federal government. I think you've got to answer these because I want you and Dr. Fauci to maintain credibility. What's the what's where are we on that process? If they say, no, I want my letter answered. What's you're the director. What are you going to tell your general counsel? Uh, again, I think we have offered to have a conversation as the next step. I think that would be the most useful step and not to get quite so rigorous and oriented uh, in this fashion of letter exchanges and waiting to see how that might basically take shape. And if they disagree? Well, you must realize at this point, the White House is engaged. They are engaging in this larger level of investigation. We are not a completely free agency to just decide what we're going to do. We have to correlate all of our efforts with the Department of Health and Human Services, which I am part of, with Secretary Becerra, and with the White House, right to the top. This is I agree with that. If, if they direct you not to answer, that's an executive privilege issue. But that isn't the case yet, is it, doctor? I think there are lots of concerns about exactly how best to respond to many of these very detailed, sensitive questions for which we don't have ready answers. So it has not been really resolved about how best uh, to handle this. Dr. Collins, thank you. Please keep coming back. It's a key issue for credibility. So I wish you good luck in satisfying Congress, which I was never able to do either. So <laughs> good luck on that one. Dr. Francis Collins from NIH, thank you for joining me again. Thanks, you. Have a that was the interview with Dr. Francis Collins from June 2nd. I spoke to him twice before during the month of May and April. Here is the second of those conversations. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt inside the Beltway, joined again by Dr. Francis Collins, director of the National Institute for Health. If you don't know Dr. Collins, one of the leading scientists in the United States led the Genome Project to its amazing completion. Also a great evangelical spokesperson. He's written about that. Dr. Collins, welcome back. It's good to see you again. I appreciate you returning so soon. Nice to be back with you, Hugh. And we got big news now about being able to immunize kids uh, 12 to 15 with a vaccine that's safe and effective. So let's get on with that. Uh, this let's, is a really good moment. Let's go right there. Pfizer and I believe Moderna are now cleared. Is Moderna cleared as well, Dr. Collins? No, Moderna is still uh, putting their data together to submit to the FDA. So the clearance that got announced yesterday by CDC was just for Pfizer. Uh, that's that two-dose thing. But anybody who's interested in getting their kids immunized who are 12 to 15, you can do that now. And by the way, the easiest way to find out if there's a site near you is to go to vaccines.gov and find out what's the place closest to you that has the Pfizer vaccine and get your kids signed up so that they can once again start, you know, hanging out with their friends and doing sports and maybe going back to school in the fall without having to worry so much about this doggone virus. If you had a 12-year-old grandchild, Dr. Collins, and maybe you do, would you urge them to get vaccinated? 
I have a 14-year-old grandchild, a granddaughter, and I have most definitely urged her to get uh, vaccinated, and she has signed up. All right. That is terrific. But that kind of testimonial, by the way, is the best kind of testimonial. Let me do two other headline stories before I go to the objections. I did a whole show on objections to the vaccine. I want to throw them at you. But first, let me ask you about gain-of-function research. It's become a contentious issue. I'm looking at NIH uh, symposium you held on gain-of-function. Could you explain for the Steelers fans out there what gain-of-function research is? Absolutely. And there has been a lot of noise about this, and a lot of the information is not accurate. So let me try. Basically, this is the kind of research where you're studying a particular pathogen in a very tightly controlled environment to try to understand what about that virus or that bacterium might we most want to be worried about that nature might develop into an even more dangerous organism. We do this under extremely tight circumstances. The NIH has only approved that kind of research in a couple of instances for influenza. We have never approved that for coronaviruses. But now there's a buzz that maybe that Wuhan Institute of Virology was conducting that kind of research. We don't know that. There's no evidence for that. And let me say categorically, NIH would not have supported any such research on coronaviruses because there are risks there that you might actually end up producing a virus that has a higher danger uh, attached to it than what nature has already come up with. Again, the reason to do it is to try to have a little forecast of what we might need to watch out for that nature could develop, but that should only be done under very carefully controlled circumstances. We have in the United States a rigorous system for overseeing any kind of uh, gain-of-function research like that, and it's only really been utilized twice for influenza. Now, I, I just heard you say categorically the United States did not fund research of gain-of-function sort into the COVID virus in Wuhan, would they have funded? Do you, can you say the same thing about gain-of-function research, period, of any sort in Wuhan? We, of course, do not have internal insight as to what was going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. NIH strongly supports uh, the position that we need a f more thorough investigation of what exactly were the origins of this virus. The original WHO study was not considered to have been as thorough or as objective as it needs to be. NIH working with the State Department, the Agriculture Department, and WHO is insisting upon a more careful and more objective analysis of everything that happened in Wuhan back in December of 2019. But can you rule out, Dr. Collins, the United States having funded any sort of gain-of-function research in Wuhan? We absolutely did not fund gain-of-function research in Wuhan. All right. That's great. Let me ask you about the Indian variant. As we speak, the SAGE Committee in Great Britain is at number 10, meeting with the prime minister about the Indian variant. We talked about it last week. Are you more worried or less worried this week? Well, I'm heartbroken by seeing the way in which this is devastating India in terms of its risks uh, in, to the rest of the world, and particularly the risks that maybe the vaccines wouldn't work against it. I'm somewhat encouraged by the more recent laboratory data that makes it look as if the Pfizer, the Moderna, and the J&J &J vaccine do have pretty good activity against this so-called B1617, which is the Indian variant. We need to get a little bit more of that data in hand, but right now it's looking encouraging. You're stressing the Steelers fans out. They don't go over two digits, doctor. Uh, let me go to <laughs> some of the objections that were called into me. Uh, Greg in Ventura, California said, quote, I'm 72. I haven't been sick a day in my life. Why would I get the vaccine? How do you respond to that, Dr. Collins? 
Well, a lot of people who've never been sick a day in their life are going to get sick. In fact, it's almost universally the case. So why would you not want to take advantage of something that's proven safe and effective and for which you at age 72 are at a particularly high risk if you happen to get infected that you could end up in the ICU or even die. So yeah, your, your past history is not a predictor of how you will do. There are lots of people who were totally healthy until a few months ago and got COVID and ended up in very bad shape or even died. 580,000 people have died in the U.S. Let nobody imagine that could not be them. Uh, doctor, I said to him, even if you are got a remarkable immune system, you could still be a transmitter of the disease and you would be less likely to transmit the disease if you had the vaccine. Did I give him correct information? You are so right, Hugh. So you, you took my argument to the next level. Thank you for that, because that's a point. This is not just about each of us taking care of ourselves, although that's a lot of it. It's also taking care of our family, our neighbors, our friends. Let's each of us try not to be the super spreader that is going to cause danger to others. Yeah, in the new book, Doom by Neil Ferguson, it's a fascinating look, Dr. Collins. I recommend it to you. It's about disasters in human history and the pandemic. He said that it's continuing to be the case that super spreaders are 20% of the cases and they create 80% of the secondary infections. Do you agree that 2080 rule? I don't know the data that backs that up. I think that's somewhere in the right vicinity. I wouldn't want to say it's exactly 2080, but certainly super spreaders have disproportionately contributed to the spread, but nobody knows if they're one of those or not. Another it, reason, coming back to the point you just made, get everybody vaccinated. Tim in Phoenix asked, I've already had COVID. I don't need to get this. Um, you know, that is an argument that I would have probably said was right a year ago, but there's data here to say, actually, that the vaccine provides you with better long-term immunity than natural infection. That seems surprising. You would think the natural infection would be the best possible way to generate antibodies. Maybe it's because natural infection basically affects your respiratory tree, whereas the vaccine gets to your whole system and gets your immune system really revved up. So we strongly recommend people who've had COVID-19 should still get vaccinated. That'll give you the best protection going forward. The third one, uh, this is very interesting to me. The J&J &J research used aborted fetuses, to which I responded, I'm Catholic, and that's not an objection the church raises. You're an evangelical doctor. What do you say to that? Well, that is an issue that I think pro-life people have been concerned about. Let's be clear what we're talking about. A fetal cell line that was derived in the 1970s from a legal pregnancy termination in Scandinavia. This cell line has been growing in laboratories for the last 40 years. It is a very useful way uh, for vaccines like the J&J &J vaccine to be produced. And so that's how they grow uh, this particular vaccine in those cells. The Catholic Church has looked at this, and they say that it's entirely ethical for Catholics to take advantage of this vaccine because it's life-saving, even though it has this long 40- or 50-year connection uh, to something that they would not have approved of. I understand the, the circumstances there. Let me just say the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines are not grown in fetal cell lines. And let me also say that the rumors that are out there that the actual vaccine has recently derived fetal tissue in it are absolutely false. Let me add to another buzz conspiracy theory. Uh, I'm not sure if it is. It's, it's an objection that came up repeatedly. It's an experimental vaccine. The FDA has not approved these vaccines. They've only given authorization for experimental use. I did my best to explain that's a distinction without a difference right now. But, Dr. Collins, you'd be better at that than I am. 
Well, we have experimental use authorization, EUA, and people have heard those three letters a lot, uh, because of the need to move quickly when there's a pandemic and people are dying. But before FDA has its full information about two years of follow-up, which is normally what might be required for a full endorsement. By the way, Pfizer has now applied uh, for a permanent endorsement uh, of their vaccine. FDA is looking at that data. I don't think this is a distinction that should discourage people at all from taking advantage of the vaccine. The EUA is still very rigorous, and all the data is out there about safety and efficacy. So people should feel quite reassured that this system works. We have in the United States the gold standard for looking at safety and efficacy, and that standard has been met for the vaccines that receive the emergency use authorization. Dr. Collins, Amy gave me a two-pronged objection. One, I'm 40 years old and still of childbearing age. I don't want to compromise my ability to have a baby. And secondly, if I got pregnant, I'm afraid it would influence the baby adversely. To what you respond to that double objection? Those are very reasonable concerns, and I think a lot of women have had those. At the present time, there is absolutely no evidence that the vaccines cause any risk of infertility. And I think we would know that by now. Similarly, I don't think the disease itself has affected fertility. We would know that. It's been around long enough. In terms of the risks to pregnancy, uh, we also have looked pretty carefully at that. There's a paper published about uh, uh, a week ago looking at outcomes of pregnancy for women who did get the vaccine, more than 35,000 of them, no evidence that it had any negative effect at all. And let me also say, pregnant women who get sick with COVID-19 are at higher risk of severe illness. And that's something to pay attention to. The vaccine is probably particularly a good idea to avoid that kind of outcome. Just the same, women with those concerns should talk to their OBGYN doc, uh, get the information from their own provider. But the evidence would say, uh, the person who's writing to you, uh, Amy, uh, it's okay. Uh, the, uh, the likelihood that the vaccine is gonna hurt you seems to be extremely remote, and the likelihood it could really help you is quite compelling. I don't know if you've watched coverage by Tucker, who's a friend of mine, Tucker Carlson, but he continually brings up those incidents of bad response, as news people can and should do. Have you seen any negative response to the vaccine that gives you cause for concern about pulling it back in any way? Well, there was the concern about the J&J &J vaccine and this rare clotting problem, uh, which CDC just yesterday announced they've done another survey. There are 28 cases out of about 9 million people who got the J&J &J vaccine. And that is a significant clotting issue, although it is treatable. When you go through the math, uh, your likelihood of being benefited by this single-shot vaccine is still vastly greater than being hurt, but that is the reason they did a pause on that vaccine before studying it carefully and then allowing it to be in injected again. I have a 19-year-old grandson and a 21-year-old granddaughter who both got the J&J &J vaccine, and I'm really glad they did. My last two questions, doctor, uh, very, very effective questions. One was, Look, we've had SARS, MERS, and Ebola within the last 10 years. It took five years to get vaccines for Ebola. Why can we possibly trust the rush in this case? And by the way, don't we have another pandemic coming? Well, there's two questions there. So yeah. why trust the rush? Again, we were in the midst of a threat to the whole world. You would not have wanted the scientists to take their time, I don't think. It's interesting that the fact that we were able to do this in 11 months 
uh, is unprecedented, but it's also causing people some concern about whether corners were cut. Look, I right, was right in the middle of all of this uh, during the development of the vaccines, and I can tell you no corners as far as safety or effectiveness were cut at all. What we did was to get rid of some of the downtime that normally takes years to go from the idea of a vaccine to having it approved. All of those bureaucratic steps, all of those points where you have to make some plans that maybe you should have made ahead, those were all stripped away. And this was done thanks to Operation Warp Speed in a very rapid fashion. But people, look at the data, and I think you would be convinced probably there's never been a vaccine that was studied more rigorously with more people, 30,000 or more, before deciding whether it worked. And is this the last pandemic? No, it's probably not the last pandemic. And we are learning lessons every day to prepare for what we might need to face going downstream. And that's something you will want us to do. We must not slip back into complacency after this one. We have to think about ways to get ready for whatever's out there coming the next time. In your head, Dr. Collins, do you credit Donald Trump with Operation Warp Speed along with your obviously scientific community and the people who funded it and HHS for guiding it? It was an amazing team effort. I particularly want to shout out to Secretary Alex Azar, who's really the person who came up with the idea to have this all of government effort, including doing at-risk manufacturing so that we wouldn't end up with a successful vaccine and no doses to give to anybody. So yes, it was a remarkable effort. And it's one of the reasons we got there in 11 months and we've saved a lot of lives. That was artfully crafted, doctor. Does President Trump come in for some credit there? Well, he was, after all, the president of the United States, and he approved the effort. And I stood with him in the Rose Garden in May of last year when this was announced. And Monsef Slaoui was brought on board, a remarkable leader, in order to make this effective. And it really has been an amazing experience. My very last question this morning, Dr. Collins, was from Sally in Atlanta. I'm taking ivermectin. My doctor recommended it. It's 80 percent effective. Why would I take the greater risk of getting sick when my doctor has told me to take ivermectin? Well, ivermectin is interesting but unproven. It is a drug that was developed to treat a parasitic disease. Uh, there is a general sense that maybe it helps if you're positive for SARS-CoV-2 that you take this and you won't end up in the hospital. We are about to run a trial to really figure out if that's true. A lot of the data so far is pretty conflicting. Remember hydroxychloroquine, where everybody was really sure it worked, and ultimately, when you did the rigorous tests, turned out it didn't? We need to know whether ivermectin is actually one of the greatest things around or whether it's another one of these false hopes. And right now, we don't know the answer. So I'm not sure why her doctor is telling her this is proven. At the present time, if you go and look at the expert data, it's still up in the air. Dr. Francis Collins, please keep coming back. I'll keep getting the questions queued up for you, and I appreciate your time. And finally, this is the first of my conversations with Dr. Francis Collins of NIH, the director of NIH, and it introduces him as a personality as well as a head of NIH. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Greetings to my 400 affiliates. Special moment here. Dr. Francis Collins joins me. He is the director of the National Institute for Health. Good morning, doctor. How are you? I'm just fine, Hugh. How are you doing this morning? I am great. It is such an honor to talk to you. I'm really glad you joined me. I'm one of your big admirers. Although uh, I am a Presbyterian Roman Catholic, I've never attended your Presbyterian church inside the Beltway, but I will someday. My wife drags me to another one every other week or so, but I'm a Roman Catholic. But I admire your writings and your faith, and thank you for joining me this morning. 
Well, that's very kind of you. Yeah, you're welcome anytime to come and check out the other Presbyterian churches in the neighborhood. They're all pretty amazing places uh, populated by incredibly dedicated people. And very diverse crowds. The, the great thing about Beltway Presbyterians and Catholics is they don't talk politics on the church patio, and I appreciate that a lot. Dr. Collins, I want to begin with the most obvious question. Given your credibility and you're in your second decade at the head of NIH, and people in my world, the um, evangelical Roman Catholic Presbyterian world, we love people like you who speak about their faith and then do good work. Why was the Johnson & Johnson vaccine paused, and was it a mistake? Um, I know there's a lot of discussion about this. I'm right in the middle of those kinds of discussions, although it is the call of the FDA, and I don't want to undercut their authority. I think they did the right thing, Hugh. I mean, there was this growing concern about a very rare kind of clotting disorder that affected a few people, and they needed to be sure we had a complete handle on exactly how frequent was this and how severe was it. And so to pause for 10 days and get all of that data together and then bring the experts to look at benefits and risks, I think was exactly the right thing to do. I know it created an opportunity for more people to be skeptical about the vaccines, but you could look at it the other way, that this means our system works, that even something that happens only one in a million people is enough for us to detect it, to study it carefully, and then to be able to say, this is still a vaccine that is good for people. Now, Dr. Collins, your expertise is so many more and deeper than mine. But the one thing I know is communication and amplification of messaging. I've been doing this for 30 years. And there are six, uh, six million people listening right now on 400 affiliates. I know how to message. I thought the messaging around that decision may have been the worst governmental messaging I have seen because it led to a precipitous drop in vaccination rate. And I believe, especially among uh, low information consumers of data about the uh, vaccines to a great deal of hesitancy and as a result to the spread and perhaps a much higher death toll. Was it worth it in retrospect? I think it was because I think it's a documentation of how rigorous we intend to be about safety issues. I mean, think about it if we'd gone the other way, Hugh, and basically said, oh, yeah, maybe there's a problem here, but we're not going to stop. Would that not have added even more anxiety to those who are already skeptical about vaccines? I don't know. We'd have to have a parallel universe and do the experiment. I think, though, it is fair to say, if you ask today people who are still hesitant about vaccines, how big a role to the J&J &J pause play in that? It wasn't that big a deal. They were hesitant before. They're hesitant now for lots of other reasons. I don't think this was a major factor in where we are. Have you um, been accessed uh, to the conversations in the White House? And I'm trying to help out the Biden White House on messaging vaccines, because I believe We've got to get vaccinated. It's 100 percent. I've had my two Pfizer shots, stood in line, all that deal. My son had the Johnson & Johnson, so I, I have no doubt about its efficacy. And my brother is a 30-plus-year toxicologist who's retired now. We talked about all the science. There's nothing wrong with these vaccines. Everyone should get them. But one of the concerns that I heard in those conversations was that Black Americans especially had a concern that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine wasn't as good as the other vaccines because it was one shot, not two. Have you heard mm. that concern? Oh, goodness. I could give you a list of concerns that would be many pages long, and that is certainly one of them. I'm with you. I think the J&J &J vaccine is a fantastic opportunity. And my two grandkids, uh, boy 19 and girl 21, both chose it because they liked the idea it was just one dose. You don't have to come back later. You're one and done. And I think a lot of people feel the same way. 
Certainly, the African-American community has other concerns about the vaccines in general and the sort of way in which uh, in the past they aren't, haven't always been well treated uh, by medical research. Tuskegee comes up. And of course, our whole healthcare system has clearly not always treated them very well. So why should they be confident that this time we're offering something that's good for them? So there's all that reasons. You know what? I think we we need to listen really carefully to each person's concern. They're not all generic. They're not all the same. There are good answers to each of their questions, but we have to be sure to provide them. I think if people go to this website uh, for the COVID-19 Community Core, which has hundreds of organizations representing underserved groups, uh, things like the National Urban League, there's a lot of answers there. Just go to Google and type in, we can do this, and you'll see what's up there, which I think will be a help to a lot of people. The other thing is, you, I think we need to spend more time in reminding people about the benefits of getting vaccinated. I know you're doing that. Gosh, I was able to have dinner last night with another couple, my wife and I. We sat around the same table. We took off our masks. We broke bread together. We prayed together. We had a, an experience of hugging each other on the way out the door. This is like being liberated. And I think people who are holding back probably are missing out. And yeah, I went clear back to uh, the other advantages. People are going to be given Safeway discounts in the grocery store if you have vaccination status. There will be a lot of public events where I think private institutions running concerts are going to expect uh, proof of vaccination. Let's just do this and let's get this pandemic behind us. And that takes all of us, not just some of us. 100% agree. I like Maryland's decision, Governor Hogan's decision to pay state employees a $100 bonus. Incentives matter. A shot and a beer programs are funny and they work. I'm all for it. And I want my Browns and their Super Bowl run to have full stadiums during that. So couldn't agree with you more. But let's talk about credibility, doctor. Who made the decision on the pause? Because you're never going to persuade me on this, given my sets of skills on on uh, messaging and your set of skills on science, we're not going to agree. But who made the decision? Transparency matters a lot. Did the Biden White House make it? Did the CDC make it? Did the FDA make it? On which decision are you talking about? To pause the J&J vaccine. Uh, to pause. Uh, that was the FDA's decision, and that's their appropriate responsibility. They have the experience, the authority. Uh, they looked at this long and hard. They did some consulting with other folks, but you don't really want uh, politics to get into that space. So I think the FDA appropriately took the lead. I think Janet Woodcock, who's the uh, acting commissioner, and Peter Marks, who oversees the vaccine effort, are a superb scientists uh, who've been through a lot <laughs> of very challenging issues before, and they were the right people with the help of their staff to make the decision, and I totally support them. Now, Dr. Fauci's been a guest a couple of times on the show. I'm a huge admirer of his, and I defend him against his conservative critics because I happen to believe Everybody of both parties and of all points of view have actually tried to do their best in this. Some mistakes have been made, but everyone has tried to do their best. And no governor, R or D, no state, blue or red, is trying to get people killed. Mistakes are made and, and bureaucrats make mistakes, but we got to be very forgiving because it's a very difficult disease. Am I right about that? Do you share my point of view? You are so right about that. And it breaks my heart when we have people dying, you know, how many 570,000 people in this country alone, and somehow we're fighting about things 
like who made which decision with which information as if it was a political football. That just is so tragic for our country. If we could please take a public health stance about this that looks at the evidence and sets politics aside, we'd be further along. I'm afraid we haven't done very well on that. One of the reasons, doctor, is because of a lack of credibility and transparency and communication consistency from the front of the room. And this happened under the Trump administration. You know my good friend, Robert C. O'Brien. I've talked to him a great deal at length about the process inside the White House. You know, Pottinger, you know, the president who I've talked to about this. I, we, it was not the finest hour of Republicans or Democrats. But one of the things I talked about with Dr. Fauci last year, and he kind of punted on it, he didn't want to talk about it. It's now in this book. And I don't know if you know Niall Ferguson, one of the world's great historians, has a new book out. Doom, the politics of catastrophe. And I'm reading it this week. I'll talk to him next week. On page 311, he writes this. The bigger failure was the CDC centralization and general hampering of testing. It not only declined to use the WHO testing kits, but also impeded other institutions in the United States from doing their own tests and then distributed a test that did not work. Do you agree with that critique? Well, it was a very, very rough start to testing, that's sure. I think everybody will agree that was an unfortunate chapter as we were trying to get geared up to deal uh, with COVID-19. That got uh, ultimately fixed, but we lost a couple of months there where we would have had a much better opportunity to see where the disease was before it became so widespread. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say uh, this was a it was an unfortunate chapter in our long and painful 16 months of COVID-19. Notice things have gotten a heck of a lot better in that space now. And I will take a little credit here that NIH jumped in uh, with some additional funds from the Congress to develop new technologies. Heck, we're doing home testing now, where people can find out when they get up in the morning, whether they want to go to work or not, whether they might have this virus. That kind of technology didn't exist. And now it does because of a big push to try to make up for what had been a rough start. Now we're coming up to a dangerous intersection, doctor, and I don't try and ambush anyone, but it's important that your answer on this be right. Um, why did the testing breakdown occur. And the reason I say this is critical is it goes to credibility of the institutions involved, that they be open and transparent. As, for example, any church in which you and I are a member, and you've probably been a uh, an elder like I have, whenever you make a mistake, you've just got to lay it out there. Hang a lantern on your problem is what Chris Matthews happened. CDC made a mistake. Why did it happen? How did it happen? And how much did it cost us at the beginning? You know, others have tried to dig into that. Maybe Niall Ferguson's book goes into why this got so off the track and it wasn't fixed for weeks at a time. I don't have any inside information about that. I think CDC was feeling like this is our job. We, we are supposed to be good at this. We, we, we OK, we've had a glitch, but we can fix it quickly. And it just kind of spiraled uh, into a place where so much time was lost. I don't have any personal uh, inside information to tell you exactly what went wrong, but certainly we all have to look at this and say that was an unfortunate chapter. All right, now I want to go back to the present because to me, the greatest concern, and I try and get smart and I talk to my toxicologist brother and I read everything that I can and I talk to you and Dr. Fauci. My greatest concern as a communicator layman who has grandchildren is the risk of a vaccine evading variant emerging and not merely evading, but morbidly so, one that can kill people. What is that risk? Is it 1% in your view or 100% in your view? 
I wish my crystal ball had percentage labels on it, but it doesn't. <laughs> I think right now, Hugh, we are in pretty good shape. There was a spate of papers published yesterday in the real world, a big study from Israel, a big study from Qatar, looking to see how did the Pfizer messenger RNA vaccine perform in that setting. And it was very reassuring. Israel is overwhelmed with this B117 variant, which is now about 60% of the isolates in the US. This is the one that swept across the UK and then pretty much went to the rest of the world. And in fact, in that real world, 95% efficacy uh, of the Pfizer vaccine against that variant. That should be very reassuring. Qatar has both that one and the South African variant, the B1351. And in terms of severe disease, hospitalization, and death, over 90% protection against that one, which was the one we were even more worried about. So at the moment, I think we're pretty good, but the question is what's lurking out there? The one I'm watching now, and I wish we had more data, and maybe we will another week, is the B1617, which is in India, causing incredible death and destruction. And we don't yet know exactly how well our vaccines will work against that. The evidence we have is encouraging, but I wanna see more. Uh, now, Doctor, you will recall, I hope, Don Rumsfeld's famous, there are known unknowns and there are unknown unknowns. I'm very worried about the unknown unknowns, because I read The Great Influenza when George W. Bush used to carry it underneath his arm, and it scares the hell out of me. People don't know how bad it can get. Are you still losing sleep over second-order consequences about which very few people are focused right now? Oh, yeah. My sleep disorder has not gotten any better because I am certainly concerned, as you've just raised, about what other variants might be lurking out there that we haven't seen yet that are really different than the original Wuhan virus and where our vaccines no longer provide the necessary protection. The best way to keep that from happening is to have everybody get vaccinated as quickly as possible and drive this virus out of here. But the more people that are getting uh, immediately infected, the more chances the virus has to mutate some more and ultimately something, you know, subjected to evolutionary selection, which is happening in real time for this virus, may emerge that we are not prepared for. Now, frankly, we are thinking about that every day. You may have seen uh, also yesterday, Moderna published their first data on their revised vaccine, which has a different range of coverage of that South African variant. It looks really good, but we don't want to have to do that. We don't want to have to come up with a booster for people because we have a new virus that the current vaccines don't quite work against. We want to get I'll, this out of here. Uh, now, I want you to speak to the conspiracy, uh, or, or actually, I don't want to call it conspiracy, that's derogatory, to the concern that some people have that I've heard voiced to me personally. I think it's it's not uh, in any way grounded in fact, but I've heard it so often, I want you to speak to it, that the mRNA vaccine somehow changes DNA and therefore has long-term consequences about which the medical establishment and big pharma isn't talking to us. And I tell them, no, that would be a liability risk. As a lawyer, that would be crazy for anyone to do and not reveal. But would you talk to that particular set of off-the-chart concerns, which are nevertheless out there? I would be glad to. And this is something I know a little bit about. I had the privilege of running the Human Genome Project. My whole career has been focused on DNA and trying to understand it. So DNA gets transcribed into messenger RNA. It doesn't go back the other way. 
So, and the messenger RNA that is injected in the muscle is there for a very short period of time, just enough uh, to produce the protein, that spike protein that you need to generate the antibodies that are gonna give you immunity. Uh, it doesn't even get into the nucleus where the DNA is. So this is um, somebody's fanciful idea who needs to go back and study molecular biology 101. And basically it's one more scare tactic that I think is preventing people from taking advantage of what has been frankly, the most amazingly successful vaccine development in decades. This approach with 95% efficacy and a really good safety record has gotten us to where we are. And the more people we can get on board with that, the sooner we'll be done with COVID-19. I have two more questions, Dr. Collins. You've been generous with your time. Does Operation Warp Speed deserve credit? Because the politicization of the pandemic is one of the most unfortunate things on both sides of the aisle and part of the suspicion among deep conservatives and some Trump supporters is that he was not credited with any uh, contribution to Operation Warp Speed where he ought to have been applauded. What do you think? Well, I agree with you. The politicization of what has been a major public health crisis that we've responded to with the best science you could imagine is truly tragic. Operation Warp Speed made things happen that have never quite happened like this before, pulling together all of the ways of designing and developing the vaccines, running the clinical trials, doing the manufacturing in advance at risk, just in case the vaccines worked, all of that organized in an unprecedented way, spending a lot of taxpayers' money, I might say, but in a very legitimate way. I would give a particular shout out to the former secretary, Alex Azar, who really was the person who contemplated the need for this Operation Warp Speed when some of the rest of us weren't quite sure we needed that. Uh, he had that vision. Uh, and I also want to give a shout out to Monsef Slaoui, who came in to lead that effort uh, for a dollar and, and who, with his experience in vaccine development, which was exquisite, was able to steer this in a direction that got us two FDA-approved vaccines in 11 months. So yeah, there should be a lot of shouting and cheering for that. All right, now my last question goes to our status as fellow believers in the resurrection factual accuracy of the gospel accounts of Christ. Because you, you don't write the introductions that you get in newspapers. I work for the Washington Post in part, and when they interviewed you last year, they said, since the start of the coronavirus in the United States, Collins has been in an unusual position to address people of faith many of whom are skeptical of scientific research for such things as evolution and human influence climate change. The following interview with Collins talks about he's talking to faith leaders about the coronavirus has been edited for length and clarity. I think that's a sideswipe. I think that's a drive-by. I don't know any people of faith who are generally, I really don't, none of them in my circle are skeptical of climate change or of evolution. I, I honestly think that's a, a, a terrible medieval sort of tactic of torturing the evangelicals. What do you say to reporters who carry around these stereotypes with them? Well, you know, Hugh, I think maybe there is a bit of a stereotype, but there is still some truth to that. Uh, if you sort of ask evangelicals across multiple different denominations, maybe not the Presbyterians, but uh, talk to the Southern Baptists, uh, what's their view about evolution? There's still a strong sense out there that that's an atheist conspiracy uh, to try to undercut the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. I don't see it that way at all. I see you can completely put those things together as part of God's plan. 
But, you know, go to the website for answers in Genesis and you'll see. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't do that, America. Don't do that. No, <laughs> no, don't do that. Well, you just just saying, said, it's, still, <laughs> it's still alive, Hugh. And if people really want to see how all these things can fit together, go to a different website called BioLogos, B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S, and you'll see some wonderfully thoughtful people coming up with interesting insights into how science and Christian faith are actually Wonderfully complimentary. So yes, and, and the that's the Roman Catholic point of view. And and Dr. Albert Moeller runs Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I talk all the time about how the church has to be understood correctly to advance both science and faith. But back to this this meme, whenever believers see that, it actually does great damage to the message that people of faith are in fact, I think, overwhelmingly majoritarian. There, you'll find some atheists who are anti science as well, uh, and, and you'll find climate alarmists who are anti-science. Can't we just approach the issue at hand without attributing to people, this is the great error, attributing to people points of view that you don't know that they hold? Not you, but I mean generally the media. Well, no, I totally agree with you there. And this is a sin that we're all creating all too often these days. We do a lot of imputing of attitudes to people that we don't know yet. And that really is not helping uh, with our overall problem of such dissension across communities in this country, which is heartbreaking to see. And certainly people of faith ought to be in there uh, being peacemakers and not adding further to the dissension. I'm not sure that's necessarily the case either when you see how faith and politics have gotten so completely tangled up in ways that have done really not very good things to either. Well, Dr. Collins, thank you for your time. Everyone who's listening is praying for you, at least those of us who are co-religionists or people of faith. And I appreciate your joining me for this extended conversation, your transparency, your honesty, and your hard work. Thank you, doctor. Thanks, you. It's nice to be with you. Call me back anytime. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.